This evening, if you have your Bibles, please open up with me to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, and as you're, as you're turning there, some of you may remember that uh, following the 2016 election, there were, there were a number of Hollywood celebrities that were disappointed and upset by the outcome of that uh, election. Uh, and many of them uh, started a, a hashtag because they didn't like the results of that election. And that hashtag was... Not my president. Uh, they seem to, to think that by, by saying that, uh, and it would be the case. Uh, but no matter what hashtag you use or what you say, uh, Donald Trump is still the president. Whether they like it or not, whether they wish to acknowledge it or not, he is still the president of the United States. He is still their president, uh, whether they choose to acknowledge it or not. And has some similarity with the Lordship of Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is Lord over all creation. He is Lord over every single person, whether they choose to acknowledge that fact or not. Uh, and what we are called to do as, as Christians is to, to worship Him because of who He is, that He is the Lord of all creation, and we are called to go and proclaim that to others. We are called to worship Him for who He is and go and try and convince others to do likewise. But right along with that, that acknowledgement that, that Christ is Lord is just the, that question of why, why should we worship Him as such? We worship Him as Lord because He's given us life and breath and everything. And we worship Him as Savior because of what He did so many years ago today on what we call good Friday. But why do we call it good on the day that our Lord died? Why should we look to Christ and see Him as that one who is supremely worthy? Why should we look to Him and say, yes, I want Him to be Lord of my life? That we acknowledge what it, because it is true, but we also desire it in our hearts. And as, as we look at Colossians chapter 2 this evening, now, Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians. He's trying to convince them of Christ's worthiness. He's trying to show them that Christ is supreme and that he should be first and foremost in their affections. That he should, they should worship him above anything and everything in this life. And at the beginning of the letter, Colossians chapter 1, Paul speaks of the worthiness of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. There, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, he speaks of Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And Christ is the creator of all. Then Paul continues and he tells a little bit about his own ministry because the Colossians were not familiar with him. Uh, and then in, in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul issues his first command to the Colossians. And he tells them to, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's the first command that he gives. And then in verse 8 starts uh, a, a new paragraph. And, and he, he commands and instructs the Colossians to essence, hold Christ more dearly than anything. And for Christ to be the supreme authority of what they hold to in this life. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according 
to Christ. And that's a, that's a lofty claim to say don't, don't value or don't believe anything else that is contrary to Christ. And then Paul supports that in the remainder of the paragraph. And basically his arguments are do this, hold Christ up as the supreme evaluation of what is true. First and foremost, because of who Christ is. We see that in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. The first reason that Paul gave was because Jesus is God. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. And then he he transitioned to the second reason, that because of who they now are in Christ. Did you catch all of those? You've been been baptized in him. You've been raised with him. You've been circumcised by him with a circumcision made without hands. All of these things. And then comes to verse 13. He gives this, this third reason for why they should hold Christ up as supreme in their life. And the reason that he gives is because of what God has done through Jesus. And when he begins to speak about what God has done through Jesus, he points to the cross. He points to what Jesus did in giving himself up. Read with me verses 13 through, through 15. Then you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul gives these these three reasons why Christ should be held up as supreme. And that's what we need to take to heart. That's why we come together on a Friday night to worship our Lord, to remember what He has done on our behalf, to remember that He went to the cross for us. And as we look at this, we have to, to keep those things in mind. And these are written to convince the Colossians, to convince us, of the worth of Christ and why we should look back to what he did on the cross not only every single year on Good Friday but every single day of our lives this isn't a once a year thing this is a daily thing that's what we are called to do and as we look at these three verses what I would say this evening is what we will be able to do is we'll be able to ask and answer three questions from this passage about what took place at the cross of Calvary so many years ago. What exactly was accomplished is the first question. Second would be how was it accomplished? And then third, what was to what end was it accomplished? Why did that why did Jesus go to the cross? What we see, uh, the first question was, what was accomplished at the cross? And this is seen at the beginning of verse 13. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made alive 
together with him. And that is that is the main point of verses 13 and 14. That, that what what God did through the cross of Christ, what he accomplished was our salvation. He made us alive when we were previously dead. We've been talking about that a lot on Sunday mornings as we've been looking at John chapter 3. And really, as you look everywhere in the New Testament, uh, that theme is found. That, that in salvation, God brings to life those who are dead. And we were dead in our trespasses, a violation of God's moral standards. The idea of, of taking a misstep, uh, of stepping where we should not. That is the idea. We are dead in our trespasses. We have stepped out of bounds and the result is spiritual death. And then we are also dead. Interesting phrase. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The idea is that that in our flesh there is sin that needs to be cut away. And we were spiritually dead because that had not been cut away. Christ is the one who needs to deal with that. That's what we read that he circumcises us with a circumcision made without hands. It's a spiritual circumcision. He, he cuts away what needs to be cut away. And because of that, we were spiritually dead by choice because of our trespasses and then be, by our nature. And Christ dealt with both of those. And that is why Paul is saying here to the Colossians, think about this. This is why Christ should be worthy of, the, of your affections. This is why Christ should be supreme. <laughs> in your mind and in your heart, why he should be the absolute measuring stick of all that is true and all that you allow into your heart and into your mind because of what he has accomplished in your life. He has made you alive. That is how God has worked through the cross. And this bringing the spiritually dead to life sometimes we can kind of speed right past it it doesn't seem like a miracle but we have to understand that salvation is a miracle think of it this way if you were to go to the the deli of your local grocery store and you you walk along the deli and you see uh fish lined up there and let's just for our own imagination sometimes they have their heads sometimes they don't have their heads but let's just say that they have their heads for our illustration right now these fish are, are laying there looking at you with their dead eyeball. And, and we try and bring them back to life. And we can, we can jump and shout and point and, and try and do CPR on them. I'll let you do the mouth-to-mouth on them. But you, we can do all of these things to try to bring them to life. But is that going to have any result upon them? No. None, none whatsoever. But after we've tried all of that, as we're just sitting idly by, if those fish come to life and start moving, what are we going to understand took place? A miracle, right? There's no doubt about that because dead fish don't come back to life on their own. And the same is true for us. Those who are spiritually dead, we don't come to life on our own. Here in the text it says, God made us alive together with Christ. God gave us life even when we were dead. We need to see our salvation as a miracle, as a supernatural act of God. An act that we should continually praise Him and never cease to marvel at if we have been born again, if we have placed our faith and hope and trust in Christ. And that should, should bring us hope. That is the net result. That we have hope. That we are not condemned. We are born again. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we have been united with Him. We have been made alive with Him. We have been filled in Him. We have been circumcised with Him. Buried and raised in baptism with Him. And now we have been raised to life in Christ. That's the, our union with Christ that we, that we celebrate and glorify Him for. Yet in all of these things, again, the, the, the question is asked of how, how is this accomplished? And that is what is accomplished at the cross, our salvation, that we are made spiritually alive. But then how was this accomplished? And we, and we see this in the end of verse 13 and all of verse 14. That we were made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we were made alive together with Christ through the forgiveness of our sin. That is what's being laid out here. We've, we've spoken of uh, the work of the Spirit on, in John chapter 3 on Sunday mornings, but here we see what enables all of that to take place is the cross of Christ. Him going to the cross is what enables us to be forgiven. The wages of sin is death. That is what sin earns and deserves when it has been committed Every time we trespass against God, every time we step out of bounds, we deserve death and judgment. And you know, in 21st century America, what happens to your, your debt? It follows you around everywhere. There, there's no escaping it in this electronic world. And it actually gives us a very good picture of what our debt before God is like. There's no escaping from it. It accumulates, it accumulates. It grows larger and larger as we sin against God. And what's interesting here is, is what, what Paul is saying. Is that in the ancient world, it was an, an IOU notice. A certificate of debt, as he says here. Uh, and that would be publicly posted. And it was a legally binding document. And it was written by your own hand. That you would write out how much you owed to somebody else. And that document would be posted for all to see so that the obligation of your debt would be known. And if you didn't pay that debt, you would have to face whatever the consequences might be. It might be that you went to jail. It might be that you went to death. It might be that uh, you had to be sold into slavery. It's a variety of things, but your debt was publicly known and seen by all. And your debt had to be paid. It had to be dealt with before you would be free from it. And we accumulate debt against the Holy God each and every day. And we don't even realize how frequently we sin against the Holy God. But how can we be right with God with this insurmountable debt that, that looms ever larger with an increasing number of sins accumulating? How can I possibly be forgiven? And that's that last statement in verse 14 there. That brings us hope. That brings us encouragement. That that certificate of debt, that public IOU that we owed to God, that, that has legal demands with it, it has been taken and it has been nailed to the cross of Christ. And in the first century... Whenever a criminal was crucified, and yes, crucifixion was a death for criminals. 
was intended to shame them. And, and part of their shame was that you would, on the cross, you would nail a list of their crimes. You, you would post, this is what this person did, and you wanted that to be public knowledge because you wanted everybody to look and see this gruesome death that this person is dying, and you wanted them to understand why they were dying. What's amazing, as we read in John chapter 19, what was it that was written? What was the accusation against Jesus? What was written? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That that was the accusation against him. That was his crime. And he claimed, he made himself out to be the Son of God. And don't let anybody in the, in the media or the world around you say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Clearly not the case. Why was he crucified? Because they understood exactly what he was saying. They understood exactly what he was claiming and who he claimed to be. And that's why they crucified him. And the picture being presented here that if we place our, our faith and trust in Christ, that, that public certificate of debt that demands our death, when we place our faith and trust in Christ, it is nailed with Him to the cross. And it is counted as paid because when Jesus was on the cross, as we sang about in that last song, he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. Our sins were placed upon Him. That's why our record of debt can be paid, because it was paid with the blood of Jesus. It was a costly payment to make. It cost us nothing, but it cost Jesus everything. And our sin debt has been paid now in full by Christ's death on the cross. And our sins are taken completely out of the picture. And that is how the spiritually dead can be made alive. That's how God can justify us and forgive us and at the same time still be just because the guilty still must be punished. But Christ went to the cross in our place. The forgiveness of sins is one of the most comforting truths in all of Scripture. Amen? And that is what makes Good Friday good. It's the only way Friday, this Friday can be good when the, our Lord was unjustly crucified, unjustly murdered, is because the net result is our forgiveness. And you might be here this evening wondering whether or not your sins have been forgiven. You may be wondering how you might stand before a holy God with all of your sins to answer for. And that might be a scary notion, and it, it should be. Sin before a holy God is judged. And you might be afraid of one day standing before Him. And if that's, if that's you here tonight, I would beg you to turn to Christ, to look to His cross, His all-sufficient sacrifice. As we sang that nothing but the blood of Jesus can make us white as snow. And then we also sang that Jesus paid it all, not just some, but all, all of our sin. Think of it this way. All of your sin includes past sin, 
present sin, future sin, sins that you know about, sins that you don't know about. And there's probably a whole lot more of those. The the little tiny sins that you kind of think are inconsequential, Jesus died for those. Because even those little tiny sins are acts of rebellion against the Holy God. And Jesus also died for those sins that you think are so big that you could never possibly be forgiven for. Each and every one of those sins was paid for at the cross of Christ, paid for by the blood of Jesus. And if we look to Him in faith, we will be forgiven. It will be taken from us, paid in full. I love the the, the third stanza of a very famous hymn written by H.G. Spafford called It Is Well With My Soul. And the, the third verse of that hymn says my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and i bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul what a beautiful truth that is that each and every one of our sins is nailed to the cross of jesus And it no longer is a certificate of debt that we have to worry about paying because it's already been paid. It's been cleared from our account. But then what should the response to that be? How should we respond to that type of debt payment? How would you respond just in the real life? If you had millions of dollars worth of debt and it was suddenly paid, what would you do? You would rejoice. You'd jump up and down. And you would be very thankful to the one who had paid your debt. I think if we truly understand the price that has been paid on our behalf, we would all confess with the Apostle Paul what he said in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If we truly believe and understand that Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin, if he paid all of our debts, we would be thankful to him and we would now live our lives in worship of him, exalting him for who he is and what he has done. That is how we should respond to God's grace and love and mercy displayed on the cross of Jesus. But... But Paul doesn't just highlight those things. He also goes on in verse 15 to to explain another reason that Jesus went to the cross. Not only to accomplish our salvation, we would be made alive together with Christ. Not only to pay for our sin debt, but lastly, say question number three, to what end was this accomplished? And the answer was that, that God made a spectacle of every demonic power at the cross. Look at me, verse 15. Paul says, He he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now the main point of that verse is that, that God put to open shame these demonic authorities. And He did that by disarming them and then by triumphing over them. He put them to, to public Shame. He made a public spectacle of them. And he disarmed all. In what way did, did God disarm the rulers and the authorities? And how did God disarm these rulers and these powers? Well, now when, 
What Satan does, his name literally means the accuser. Part of what Satan does, and we see this in the book of Job. What what does Satan come into the throne room and do? He accuses Job. That is what Satan does. But now, because of the cross of Christ, because our sin debt has been paid, what can Satan and his demonic powers say of God's people? Nothing. He can bring no charge against us because our debt has been paid. That is how he has disarmed the rulers and the authorities here. And then he's, he's triumphed over them. And the picture here is a, the idea of a Roman general who's been victorious, taking the, the general that he has conquered and defeated and bringing him back to Rome and dragging him behind along the streets of Rome in his chariot. Something similar in, in modern day sports teams. When you go and when you win a, a championship, whether it be NBA or NFL, what does the team do afterwards? They have a parade. And they go through the streets of their downtown, of their city, and they have a parade of, look, we are triumphant. And that is the idea here. That Jesus has been triumphant at the cross. And it's quite ironic. Because again, the cross of Christ was intended to be the death of a criminal. It was intended to to publicly shame somebody. There was no greater shame that you could bring upon somebody and to crucify them. And the, the Jews thought that they had finally gotten rid of Jesus. They had finally dealt with him. This troublemaker who kept calling them out and pointing out their hypocrisy. The Jewish leaders finally thought they had dealt with Jesus when they had the Romans crucify him. And the Romans, they had their fun. As we saw in John 19, they, they dressed him up in a purple robe and they made a crown of thorns and they pressed it upon his head. And he bore all of this shame, all of this, this mocking, all of this scorn without saying anything. And if you can imagine with me how at that moment Satan must have felt seeing the Son of God being tortured, the Son of God crucified, mocked, and then the Son of God dying on the cross. Must have been a little bit of rejoicing going on. And yet in the ultimate irony of ironies, what the demonic powers, what what the opponents of Jesus thought would be his ultimate demise became the ultimate tool of God to exalt Jesus and to bring about good. They thought it was going to shame Jesus, but it was really his exaltation. We saw that in in John chapter 3, that John speaks of Jesus being lifted up on the cross, that he would be glorified by going to the cross and and suffering. That is the means by which Jesus would be glorified. Pastor John Kitchen writes, he says, Irony of ironies. says, The cross in which the evil powers thought they had defeated Christ was the cross through which he sealed their doom. And it is through the cross that we who were doomed are set free. This is the ultimate reversal that God brought about at the cross. What was intended to publicly shame and humiliate 
actually glorified and brought about a great harvest of souls, a great salvation. That is what we see here. And that's what we, we are called to remember at the cross of Christ on Good Friday. We come to, to see all that Jesus suffered on our behalf, all of the, the injustice. And, and to one extent, it was it's really difficult to, to figure out what I wanted to speak of on Good Friday. There's so much to, to speak about the cross, so much to speak about our salvation, so much to speak about the injustice that he endured at the hands of men, how he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. How, how could all of these things be and how can we, we contemplate them in but a few minutes here as we gather together? And I would encourage you to go and think of all of those things. Meditate upon them, reflect upon them, not only today, but tomorrow and on Sunday. Contemplate the redemption that God has accomplished through the cross of Jesus. That is how He accomplished our salvation. That is how He purchased our forgiveness, paying the sin debt that we owed. And that is ultimately how Jesus triumphed. That is the end to which Christ was crucified for His glory and for our redemption. And some of you might have heard, it was a, a golf tournament last weekend, the, the Masters. Uh, and Tiger Woods won that golf tournament. It was his first major tournament win in about 11 years. And so many in the media, many celebrities... Many reporters went and said, this is the redemption of Tiger Woods. And they said that. They used a very specific word, redemption. You don't hear that word too frequently in the news media. But it was everywhere. And they said, this is the redemption of Tiger Woods. He's won the Masters and totally redeemed himself. Well, they used that language because he'd had a rough decade. He had a multitude of uh, struggles in his golf game, partly because of... Uh, much of physical maladies with his back and surgeries and different things. But but even greater than that was a, a scandal uh, that came out regarding his his marital infidelity over years and years, how he was unfaithful to his his wife. And all of that had become very public in a great way about 10 years ago. And now here they are proclaiming that that by winning this golf tournament, he had redeemed himself and he had vindicated himself. He said, well, I think you're using that word a little bit too freely there, news media. That maybe by winning this golf tournament, he's determined or shown his, his determination. He's shown his grit, but he hasn't redeemed himself. The athletic accomplishments, they don't, they don't redeem you. They don't nullify his past infidelity. They don't nullify everything that he's gone through in the past 10 years. Redemption is not found in athletic achievements or any other human work. Our redemption is found only in the cross of Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And I would encourage you to think on these things as as we go from here, that there were three things nailed to the cross that day. One, that plaque says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Second, a bloodied and beaten Savior. 
And third, all of your sins. All of your sins were nailed to that cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to praise and worship you this night. To exalt your name because of the debt that was paid on our behalf. You have borne all the weight and we have received all of the benefits of the cross. You were all anguished that we might receive all joy. You were cast off that we might be brought in. You were beaten down as an enemy that we might be welcomed in as friends. You were stripped that we might be clothed. You were wounded that we might be healed. You suffered thirst so that we might drink freely. You were tormented that we might be comforted. You were put to shame so that we might inherit glory. You groaned on the cross so that we might now sing of it. You endured all pain so that we will one day be relieved of all pain. And you bore a crown of thorns so that we will one day receive a crown. But Lord Jesus, when we receive that crown, we will cast it back down before your feet. We will give you all the glory, honor, praise and adoration that is due to your name. Because you have accomplished our redemption on the cross. You have paid our debt of sin so that we might be made rich and so that we might have an eternal inheritance that will never perish because it was purchased by your pure and righteous blood. Lord Jesus, show us the agony. Show us the glory, the darkness, the majesty of the cross. And may your cross, your sacrifice, loom large over our entire lives. And may we grow in thanksgiving and worship as we remember your death each and every day, not merely on this Friday that we call good. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, you guys are dismissed from here, but again, I would encourage you to go and reflect on these things. Don't let this day pass you by. It is a great time of, of looking back to what Jesus has done on our behalf. Amen. Amen. And Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday because the cross of Christ is not the end of the story. You guys are dismissed.